Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners Podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key tax, estate, and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. Thank you for those of you taking time to listen to this podcast on pre-transaction planning. We're going to discuss key issues to address on your checklist at both an entity and personal level as you guide your company towards an event. Uh, Joining me today is Jen Hart. Jen is Director of Investments in Health and Digital Health at Ben Franklin and oversees their life sciences portfolio and has actually closed over 150 investments. So, Jen, we really appreciate your taking some time to to join us this afternoon. It's great to join you, Greg, and this is a terrific topic. So, Jen, you, you've seen many, many companies have successful outcomes, maybe some not as successful. In your experience, from your perspective, what are the best practices you've seen at, at companies early stage to put themselves in the best position to have a successful outcome? (laughs) Great question. So first, when we are looking at opportunities at the very earliest stage, so Uh usually you have a founder team. They're not yet thinking of, of themselves sometimes as executives. They're thinking of how to drive their ideas and get them to market and succeed. And, you know, we, we do try to get them to start to think about structure and putting in place, you know, what you might call good corporate hygiene um, and mm-hmm. developing good practices like having a board, having an independent at a certain stage after you've started to raise money, um, putting in place some good HR practices, setting up the books correctly, financial controls, signing authorities and matrix matrices, um, and then even things like org charts and reporting lines and making clear what functions are being built out as the team grows. These end up actually becoming critical later at the time of an exit. It seems like something that might not be as pertinent to an exit, but having clear clarity around who is doing what in the organization when an exit ultimately happens um, can be very Mm -hmm. important to an acquirer. Sometimes they want to even acquire part of the team or have business continuity and acquire the entity as an ongoing business unit. And so even then setting up early practices that might be how they manage their board meetings and communicate with investors or what they do while they're raising money, things like setting up a data room, creating transparency, keeping track of all your contracts, setting up how you're realizing revenue and how your contracts lend clarity to when revenue can be realized are all things that we help companies do early on that build those best practices that ultimately convert to what's relevant in an actual exit. You mentioned some really important bullet points, Jen. What are some of the mistakes you've seen? You know, a lot of times you and I have observed founders who are brilliant scientists or brilliant physicians, Mm. but maybe haven't grown or run a company or gone out and raised money. 
you know, what are some of the biggest mis- mm-hmm. mistakes, some of the showstoppers that, that you've seen that, that if they could just have avoided sooner than later would have had a, a, a much, much more better difference, a better outcome for them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and a lot of them are avoidable mistakes if they get enough input and have advice to steer themselves well. You know, it's, it does take getting out of one's comfort zone as a founder to end up taking on, say, a board and making sure you're fielding some things with your board and using them well, making sure that you are building intellectual property that's often, especially in in this sector and health and life sciences, is going to be the foundation for what help gets you an exit because a lot of acquirers need that barrier to entry that is represented by your intellectual property. I've seen mistakes around not always making sure that your team is engaged and retained leading up to an exit and making sure that if you start to have to downsize in anticipation for an exit that you don't rattle others who you need to keep on. We've seen you know, when, when job markets are good, people leave and maybe they're even really pertinent to an exit. So we've seen, I'd say, a variety of issues that looking at a company holistically can arise from all these different areas. It could arise from governance and board management or intellectual property and assets or once due diligence is being done in the final stages by an acquirer and and they're looking at earnings more closely and how the company has represented revenue, maybe that starts to become a little more fragile and maybe the deal gets renegotiated. There's no one mistake area. And everyone founding a company and going through this should realize they will make mistakes. It's not a game of perfection, but making sure that you get enough guidance along the way to help avoid some of them is, is is really valuable. Jen, assuming a company is getting traction and looking like they are heading towards an exit and they've got, they've got interested acquirers, what are things they can do to really, what are catalysts to get a better multiple? What are catalysts to get a better outcome from a, from a purely financial perspective? Are there any things you've seen companies do when they know they're on that path and, and just things they can do to either create multiple bidders or things they can do to even better the outcome of the exit? Mm, Yeah, great question. So if they are looking at the comparables in their market, that is often going to be based on multiples of revenue, and they're still growing, and their pipeline is looking really good, it's hard to be able to get the multiple that they might want for valuation based just on revenue. So they've got to be able to build the case that what's in their pipeline is is converting with some assurance and that the sales cycles are manageable and that they are differentiating themselves in the market that's going to get that pipeline to be realizable so that they can really start to get the benefit of what's near term in the next year or two in, in how their valuation is seen. When valuations are up in general, they all can get the benefit of some of the comparables out there. So seeing some other recent financings, but you still end up having to build the business fundamentals of pipeline and opportunity and that your brand and your presence is differentiated and attractive 
all of that can go into a better valuation. I, w- I would just add one other thing to that, and that's being of strategic interest. Mm. And so valuation can come from a strategic also anchoring your your either your exit or your financing. They will have a strategic interest so that they get the benefit on the back end potentially of maybe just getting a line of sight into the business. They may not even want to be an acquirer, but they may be willing to go with a higher valuation, which is great because it's just of strategic interest for them to be close to the company and be in, whether they take a board seat or not. They may also be a potential good acquirer. And you want to structure those deals carefully if you take in money from a strategic that can get you that higher valuation. So little side note there that you want to make sure that you're thinking about whether you want to wed yourself to them too much, giving them a a really strong right of first refusal can be something of a poison pill, but giving them a first option to negotiate, to put in more money or put in their pro rata, but not the whole 100% of the next round, or having a first option to negotiate an an exit with some limited time horizon um, are all really attractive options. And there are, we've consistently seen very good partners in strategics coming in as investors. So well, let me ask you, since we talk about some of what these founders are thinking about, from your perspective, you've worked with over 100 entrepreneurs and founders through exits. Why is this so important for founders and executives of early stage companies to have a strong sense of their equity valuation at every stage from, from your perspective as, as, as an advisor? No, thank you, Jen. That's, uh, that's an important question because, you know, one of the mistakes that we observe is founders and entrepreneurs, they, they start moving towards a transaction, an event, and they really haven't gone through a formal valuation process. They haven't haven't had a 409A put together. They haven't gone through an exercise where an outside firm really does a clean assessment. And it's really hard to guess at what the equity is worth. And when they start comparing it to another company that may have gotten acquired or, or, or sold in their industry, you just can't use metrics from another, uh, another firm. So I think it, it's important from day one, as mm-hmm. early as you can to begin establishing what your valuation is so that you know what the company's worth when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer, but also when you start to do your own personal planning, when you start putting together a contingency plan and what it buy sell agreements and, you know, what if type scenarios, it's just so, it's so, it's so hugely important on multiple fronts. And that's, that's a great point. And I'm glad you brought up 409As. That can have consequences from a tax standpoint if the strike price on options is not is not based in a valuation methodology that makes sense. And we do encourage and make sure companies are thinking about that if more than 12 months has gone by since the last financing and they're continuing to issue options to employees. Employee stock options is a really important motivator for these teams as they grow. When you engage an outside firm, you reference that. They will use often a mix of methodologies. And if they're using a comparable, they're not just using one, they're using several and looking at it on a weighted basis and looking at, you know, the multiple of earnings for that industry area. It it is hard to get comparables that are publicly traded for these smaller 
private mm-hmm. companies, but that's why those firms use a mix of methods and they'll use calibration method and post money and um, what growth and valuation is happening in, you know, in the markets in general and come up with something that's reasonable. You know, I always encourage companies to make sure they review the methodology and what makes sense because that is something that still needs to be looked over by the company before they have their board vote to adopt the, that 409A. But you make a great point. They need to be understanding where they are with valuation along the way. And, and I think you raise an important issue, Jim, which is understanding the nature of your equity because everyone assumes that they're going to get common equity, but that's not always the case. You're right. We are seeing more often than not equity being issued in the form of stock options or restricted stock units. And again, another mistake I see, not not necessarily founders, but but senior executives as they're putting a leadership team together and they are issued options. Are they non-qualified options? Are they incentive stock options? Do the Mm -hmm. executives understand the tax implications and the tax planning strategies around each one? Because, you know, incentive stock options offer some really favorable tax treatment that that if an executive understands them and is especially you know willing to begin to do some exercising uh, of those options which may include you know buying some and getting that clock ticking for capital gains the difference between ordinary income tax rates and capital gain tax rates you know that can be that can be nearly 15% so that's right to to really understand the tax implications of the different forms of equity that you're being issued and the strategies around them. That's that's a great point. Likewise, even for some consulting agreements that have an option or equity component, if it's for certain work being done that includes assignment of intellectual property into the company, there are instances where there can be a capital gains treatment for assigning intellectual property into a company as well. Kind of relevant in the life sciences area. Absolutely. No, no question. When, when those issues come up with these companies, we always make sure they understand they need to go speak with their own tax accountants and attorneys. So we just kind of flag the issue and make sure they understand the questions they need to be asking. And, and of course, if they have good advisors, all the better. That's important. So just going back to the different outcomes we've talked about, and I can think of in my experience with, I haven't had as many a, exits as you have gone through 30 as an investor and then additionally earlier in my career on the university technology transfer licensor side of things there were there were exits that we had including with the equity that the university had but from your standpoint with the exits you've advised discuss the importance to the executive considering these multiple outcomes too from your perspective in advance of the close yeah i think there it, you need to consider at least three different scenarios and then back into what are the issues that are surfaced from each one. What I mean by that is an optimistic outcome. So what if the stars align and there are multiple bidders, multiple acquirers, and you are able to, to, to transact it at a, at a multiple that you never would have imagined? What if there's just a mediocre outcome? And, mm-hmm. and there is a transaction and it's a good, but not a great event. Be thankful that an event occurs, but you and I have also seen gen deals fall apart in the user baseball, it's baseball season in the eighth inning, right? The ninth inning, things just yep. fall yep. apart at the end. 
And so I think it's so important to think about what tax implications we just mentioned, but what are the tax implications from a great, a mediocre, or certainly there aren't any if there's no outcome? What are, what are the insurance issues that an executive needs to think about in terms of covering their risks, whether it's disability insurance at a personal level or umbrella insurance to protect their assets, depending upon the outcome, expected outcome, the needs for these types of insurance coverages differ depending upon what the outcome looks like. And then really what we also say is you need a contingency plan. So if there is no outcome, do you have liquidity both at a personal level and at an entity level to carry you through to your next venture opportunity? Mm -hmm. And then what happens in a leadership team if you're moving towards an event, but there's a death, a disability, uh, Mm -hmm. a divorce among the the senior leadership, you know, that could have a disruptive, a disruptive outcome at the company. So looking at different multiple outcomes and thinking about different contingency plans is can't stress how important that is because strange things do happen. That's true. You could probably have an entire podcast just on that. And as you talk about every one of those scenarios, I think I've seen all of them, including the death or disability of a key person or of a wind down or of even a bankruptcy. And Again, while we can't advise ourselves, the founders and boards, of what they need to do legally, we do at least make sure that they're thinking about their fiduciary duties and what steps they can take and just what questions to be asking. And earlier in the process of company development, making sure they're just aware of needing to plan for those kinds of contingencies, Mm -hmm. even though everybody wants to hope that things will go well and have the best exit. And then in between those two ends of best exit versus an actual wind down are all those other scenarios where things kind of, they go okay, or they're maybe not ideal, but you get an okay exit. Maybe in those situations, not everybody's made whole at the initial upfront exit exchange of shares or of cash. And there's an earnout. That's where we can, I think, be helpful earlier too in getting companies to think about how to structure an exit that ultimately gives them a pretty good chance of making more than being made whole happen mm-hmm. for everybody, including the common shareholders or those who have exercised their options. And again, that goes back to all these other things we talked about, just even making sure your intellectual property is in good shape, that your market fit is good that reimbursement is good, that you have a good regulatory strategy, because if you're tying a lot of your exit to milestones, royalty rates, or being able to go into new indications for a drug or a device, or even in the digital space, you need to be thinking about those things earlier as well. So yeah, exits are not always just the one-time enormous payday. Sometimes the multiples Mm. are not all upfront. And in these structured deals, all of the effort along the way to build value into the company will will help pay off. You know, we talked about personal planning considerations an executive should consider when they feel they are moving closer. You know, so I deal less with the personal planning, financial planning side of things, of course, um, as an investor. Just speaking as an advisor, 
what do you walk them through and where do you send them next for resources if they mm-hmm. have run up against some big legal questions or what kinds of situations have you seen where maybe they have some issues? You know, can you talk about some scenarios like that? Absolutely. So you, you, you referenced earlier, Jen, having good legal counsel, good accounting counsel. And so what we, what we do is really encourage them to put together their financial team. So just like you know, a company that is looking to make a, a transaction wants to have good legal advice at entity level, good accounting advice from, from their books and making sure their financials are in order and, and maybe also using an M&A advisory firm, at the individual level, the executive wants to make sure that they have a very solid tax planning accountant, that they make sure that they have an estate planning attorney who's going to help them with a few important documents. The first is making sure their wills are in place. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed at how many executives we come across who they're just so busy running their companies and growing their businesses, they don't have they don't have wills, uh, documents that, that determines who gets what. Power of attorney, which enables one to have signing authority to sign legal documents, whether that's a spouse, a significant other, a parent, a trusted relative, you want someone to be able to make financial decisions on your behalf, a healthcare directive, a living will, what degree of care do you want uh, to, to maintain your, your, your life in, in that circumstance? And then something that, again, we often see overlooked is a, is a well-written buy-sell agreement. So if the company is starting to get some traction and there is a leadership team, what happens if one of them does pass away? especially as it relates to the value of their equity to that decedent's family. And so mm-hmm. a well-structured buy-sell agreement will be backed up with, with a legal agreement and life insurance to be able to monetize uh, that equity in, in form of life insurance proceeds and at least enable the company then to pay out to the decedent's family the value of their, of their shares. So mm-hmm. something that we think is those documents are really important. That's where you need a good attorney and a good insurance advisor that can help with the uh, coordination of things like disability, life insurance, because that all changes uh, as you move towards an exit. Your needs for that type of insurance drop, and maybe now you need more umbrella insurance to cover against litigious action. So really having that team in place and, and a financial planner to put it all together, we think is is timely and important. Those are great points, including where you have brought up the issue of insurance. I'm often dealing with earlier stage companies that that kind of run out the clock on what money they have as they raise more money. That's that's very common. So they'll end up being kind of in the zone of insolvency. They're they're raising their next round while low on cash. A lot of these companies that we're invested in are pre-revenue, many will get exits before they ever have anything on the market, of course, if they're in the therapeutic space, for example. I I do bring up and make sure companies understand that as they build their board, they they should be looking at director and officer insurance. And so that goes into people's own personal financial planning and vulnerability as well. The founders are often on the board, at least a couple of them. And they don't always understand that DNO insurance will not cover certain things like a company missing payroll. And, and occasionally you see them not know that or, or just say, well, we talked to the team. Everybody's okay with that. We're going to miss payroll and we're about to close this next round in, in two weeks. And, uh, you know, we've talked to everybody. They all agree. And I, 
you know, that's kind of a little bit of a red flag, um, making sure they understand that they can be personally liable if they're on a board for missed payroll. And it's okay if you have a very entrepreneurial spirit among your whole team and they're, they're missing payroll, but we at least flag those issues. Um, has any of that come up with the companies, uh, the entrepreneurs and executives you've advised? So we, we do see those issues. I don't get as involved at the entity level, uh, but what I do notice is the wearing of multiple hats that these, especially when the companies are very early and there's not the funding or ability to hire out that leadership team, that the executives are doing you know, multiple things out of their quote unquote normal job responsibilities. And so I think it's important that this planning be done, even while the exit may be far off. The best exits that I've seen are when, when the founders and executives are heads down, growing a great company, growing a business, great business, because good things will happen, uh, whether yep. it's an exit or they end up building out, you know, more commercialization opportunities than they even had imagined, but good things will happen and, and, making sure that you're focused on building a great company, taking care of a great team, the rest will sort of fall into place as well. That's right. And a lot of these instruments and planning tools along the way are just there to help provide some bumpers and, and absorb some liability and provide some financial planning as well. Another area with team development that we flag or help them understand is when to convert some of those people to full-time employees if they're taking on increased responsibilities and not just have them as consultants. Have you helped on the advising side when to have those who are providing maybe a part-time executive level of assistance move from the tax advantages of being a 1099 to being an employee? It's a very interesting question, Jen, because it's there's pros and cons to every decision like that because the you're right. The dollar for dollar, if you can earn a uh, hundred dollars as a as 1099 contractor versus a W two employee, you're you're better off doing it because the tax breaks of doing it as a 1099 contractor. That being said, we often don't see some cases, but often don't see contractors get equity, and so typically a company is going to want you to be on the books as an executive, and and now your your tax planning opportunities are more limited, but now you are able to receive, you know, option grants, equity grants. And so I think each individual executive needs to make, you know, his or her own decision as to what is the priority, uh, right. what, makes, what makes most sense and what's, what opportunities before them. So. Right. And from the investor side, if we see that that executive isn't just consulting in a distinct function, but starts to have a reporting line into them, they do need to be an employee. If they're increasingly taking on officer level signatory authority, they need to be an employee. So we've, we've watched some interesting transitions that way. I think starting as a, as a consultant, a contractor is an excellent way to bring in executive resources, though. It really is. And to all the advantages that you just described. Well, Jen, this was great. This was very helpful to discuss from your perspective, best practices as companies move towards an exit. Thank you all for taking some time out to listen, and hopefully you pull away some nuggets that are useful. And look forward to having you join us for our next podcast. 
Seren Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Sarian Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.